The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Let us turn our attention now to the Wizard of Yester and his summoning of goblins via a pact with the devil, as well as the undercroft of his castle, better known as the Goblin Haw. The first Hugo, or Hugo de Giffard, not Gifford, as it'll later come to be pronounced, was an influential feudal baron in Scotland, a noted sorcerer and was one of the hostages for the release of King William the Lion in 1174. It is said that this family came to Britain with William the Conqueror in the person of Walter Count de Longueville, the nephew of Gunnar, Duchess of Normandy, William the Conqueror's great-grandmother. However, Barrow states his belief that the family may have been dependents of de Varine, or the Warren family and simply came from Longville Lagefort in Seine, Normandy. The East Lothian village, Gefort, and the nearby stream, Gefort Water, both take their names from this family. Two members of this family appeared in Scotland in the train of Ada de Warren, the daughter of William de Warren, second Earl of Surrey. Hugh de Giffard and William de Giffard, a cleric who became an ecclesiastical advisor to King David I. Hugh obtained lands in East Lothian, Scotland, where he settled. William perambulated, that means to go before, in procession, with King David in Perthshire, and was assigned witness on many important charters, notably the foundational charter 
of Jedsburg Abbey, and others for Countess Ada. William and Hugh were signed witnesses to a charter of King David granting lands at Crail. From Malcolm IV, King of Scots, Hugh obtained lands at Yester, and the parish of St. Bothans, East Lothian, Scotland. Hugh appears in further royal charters until after 1189, and was assigned witness on many of the charters of William the Lion, King of Scots, under whom Hugh rose to distinction. Hugh's son and heir was Sir William de Giffard of Yester, who was sent on a mission to England in 1200, and who was also assigned witness to several charters of William the Lion. In 1244, he was one of the guarantees of a treaty with England, when he must have been a good age. Multiple legends have it that Hugh was able, via a pact with the devils or hobgoblins, to raise a magical army to his aid and use them to carry out his will. It is this army of hobgoblins that was considered the true builders of Yester Castle, or, the very least, its stunningly crafted cavern. Sir Hugo de Giffard was famously known as the Wizard of Yester and was considered to be a powerful warlock or sorcerer as well as a necromancer, in an era before such practices were met with execution. It is possible that Hugh's wizardry, coupled with his close friendship with Scottish kings, may have helped to inspire later legends of Merlin and his friendship with King Arthur, and may have even been an influence on the wizard characters of J.R.R. Tolkien's Hobbit novels. It is in the Undercroft, or the ornate brick-lined cavern under the castle and grounds, he was thought to practice his sorcery. 15th century chronicler and Abbey Abbots, Walter Bauer mentions the large cavern at Yester Castle, thought locally to have been formed by magical artifice. From the Chronicles of Scotland, Book 10, Chapter 21, Hugh Jaffard, Lord of Yester, died, whose castle, or at least the cavernous dungeon, which demons built by the art of ancient relations, for there is found a wonderful subterranean cave, constructed with wondrous work, spread over a large space of land, which is commonly called Goblin Hall. When his daughter Margaret was to marry, Sir Hugh gave her and her husband-to-be, Lord Braun of Colston, a hand-picked pair, which he had enchanted with a proviso that should anything happen to this fruit, it would spell disaster for the Braun family. The pair was encased in a silver box and kept safe, and the bronze prospered for a few hundred years until in 1692 on her wedding night, when the fiancé of Sir George Braun, Baronet of Nova Scotia, an inheritor of Colston Estate decided to remove the pair from its silver casket. Unaware of its history, believing it to be a mere ordinary pair, she took a bite and misfortune quickly followed. Sir George Braun amassed enormous gambling debts and was forced to sell the estate to his brother Robert. Robert and his two sons soon after were killed en route to Edinburgh, swept away by a freak flash flood caused by the River Tyne, bursting its banks. In destitution, Sir George died in 1718 without a male heir. After the pear was tasted, it turned as hard as a rock with its bite mark, and it still at Colston House to this day is evidence. For his role in the struggles between Hakon, King of Norway, and Alexander III, King of Scots, which ultimately, culminating in the Battle of Largs, 
Sir Walter Scott immortalizes Sir Hugh de Giffard's sorceress powers and his marmion, as heard earlier in this episode. clerk could tell what years have flown since Alexander filled our throne, third monarch of that warlike name, and eked the time when here he came to seek Sir Hugo, then our lord. A braver never drew a sword, a wiser never at the hour of midnight spoke the word of power the same that ancient records call the founder of the Goblin Hall. Lord Gifford, deep beneath the ground, heard Alexander's bugle sound, and tarried not his garb to change, but in his wizard habit strange came forth a quaint and fearful sight. His mantle lined with fox skins white, his high and wrinkled forehead bore a pointed cap such as of yore Pharaoh's magi wore. His shoes were marked with cross and spelt upon his breast a pinnacle, and in his hand a naked sword without a guard. The still gray skies of Indiana in the wintertime in the cold dark months often makes me think of exotic far-off places. Strangely enough though my mind almost always seems to wander into other gray skied places. I do love the winter months for multiple reasons but one of them is because it gives me a little bit of time to delve into mythology and folklore and really learn a little bit more about subjects that I might have been curious about but never really dived into. So recently I came across a couple of stories about elves and, well, really gnomes, not elves, but also goblins or hobgoblins and the various wizards that controlled them or that they controlled depending on how you wanted to look at it. And I thought I'd do a short episode on that. So tonight on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, let's dive into some Scottish folklore, and we might jump around a little bit from there. We'll just see where the show goes. And let's talk a little bit about some of the various wizards and goblins and gnomes that you might not know about. I'm sure you're all familiar with the little red-capped smiling gnome of commercials out there in the general public and in everyone's garden. 
but did you know that those little red caps are colored with blood? Do you know the story of the gnome? Of the red cap? I came across it a few years ago, and I'm just now getting a chance to commit this to recording for If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So bear with me and we'll get right into it. So Scottish folklorist William Henderson, 1813 to 1891, described this malevolent, goblin-like being in detail. Red cap, red comb, or bloody cap is a sprite of another sort from the friendly brownie. He is cruel and malignant of mood and resides in spots which were once the scene of tyranny, such as border castles, towers, and pill houses. He is depicted as a short, thick-set old man with long, prominent teeth, skinny fingers armed with talons like eagles, large eyes of a fiery red color, grisly hair streaming down his shoulders, iron boots, a pike staff in his left hand, and a red cap on his head. When benighted or shelterless travelers take refuge in his haunts, he flings huge stones at them. Nay, unless he is much maligned, he murders them outright and catches their blood in his cap, which thus acquires its crimson hue. This ill-conditioned goblin may, however, be driven away by repeating scripture words or holding up the cross. He will then yell dismally or vanish in a flame of fire, leaving behind him a large tooth on the spot where he was last seen. Notes on the Folklore of the Northern Counties of England and the Borders, 1879. As Sir Walter Scott mentions, the creature in his ministry of the Scottish border. Redcap is a popular appellation of that class of spirits which haunt old castles. Every ruined tower in the south of Scotland is supposed to have an inhabitant of this species. Perhaps the most famous citation of the Redcap is in the ballad collected by John Lydon, a Scots folklorist and orientalist. We will include a piece of this poem later in tonight's show. But first and foremost, understanding that the little redcaps love blood and they love those tyrannical places, specifically on the borderlands of Scotland and England, somehow not surprising, I don't think. It would not then be surprising to understand some of the history of Hermitage Castle, as well as the fact that there are multiple folkloric poems about the redcap and about Lord Solas. The Hermitage Castle, also called the guardhouse to the bloodiest valley in Britain, overlooked a territory that was frequently afflicted by violence. According to legend, it wasn't just the chaos and the surrounding territory that contributed to the castle's bloody legacy. In the 1300s, Hermitage Castle was ruled by Lord William Solis, or de Solis, referred to as Terrible William, or Bad Lord Solis. He was believed to be a practitioner of the black arts who made a deal with the devil for the fulfillment of his desires and conjured infernal spirits to do his bidding. Rumor had it that children in the area had disappeared during his reign and were never seen again. Slaughtered, perhaps during his lordship's dark rituals, it was said that the weight of the sins committed in the castle pushed the actual castle deeper into the earth, as though Hermitage Castle itself sought to hide from the eyes of God. One poem recounts how the chief of Keldar stumbled upon Hermitage Castle while he and his men were out hunting, and Lord Solus invited them in to feast. No sooner had they settled in to enjoy his hospitality than did the nefarious Lord double-cross his guests. 
casting a spell that locked the chief's men into an eternal slumber. Somehow the chief managed to escape both the spell and the castle, fleeing into the forest. Lord Solus and his men pursued him. Upon catching up with him, they discovered that their weapons could not pierce his armor, so they drowned him instead. The body of water that served as the scene of this crime is known to this day as the Cote O'Kelder's Pool. But of course, Lord Solis couldn't cause all this mischief of his own. He had supernatural forces to aid him in his misdeeds. Chief amongst the spirits Lord Solis conjured to do his dirty work was Robin Redcap, who served as his familiar and advisor. Most famously, the Redcap cast a charm to protect him from being harmed by still weapons. Like all good spells, this one had a loophole as well. And the loophole was predicted in the poem. One ballad claimed that Lord Solus kidnapped a flaxen-haired beauty named May of Gorenberry with the intention of forcing her into marriage. He also abducted her beloved, the heir to Braxholm. After taunting sweet May with the promise of seeing the man she loves serving as her bridesman in her wedding to Lord Solus, the wizard took Braxholm's heir out into the forest to force him to choose a tree to be hanged from. The young lord took his time choosing, stalling just long enough for his brother to catch up. The subsequent confrontation proved to be Lord Solus' undoing. There are also versions of the legend in which the locals became so tired of the tyranny of Lord Solus that petitioners were sent to the Scottish king. Annoyed by their complaints, the king told them dismissively, Boil him if you please, but let me hear no more of him. Too late, the king regretted his hasty words and sent his messengers to make sure that the petitioners did not act upon them. However, his messengers arrived too late to do anything, but witnessed Lord Solus' demise in the very manner the king had suggested. Regardless of who participated in Lord Solus' downfall, you might be wondering how they managed to circumvent the Red Cap's protection. The answer is that they fought fire with fire, magic with magic. Among those confronting Lord Solus was Thomas of Ursuldown, who was also a magician. He used a leaden belt filled with sand to bind Lord Solus. Once the dark saucer was subdued, he was born to a circle of druidic stones known as the Nine Stained Rig, as a poem in the Ministry of Scottish Border recounts. On a circle of stones, they placed the pot. On a circle of stones, but barely nine, they heated it red and fiery hot, till the burnished brass did glimmer and shine. They rolled him up in a sheet of lead, a sheet of lead for a funeral pall. They plunged him in the cauldron red and melted him, lead and bones and all. Following his grisly death, it's said that Lord Solus came to haunt the castle, where the screams of the children that he murdered still echo to this day. More so, a poem recounts that before he departed his castle for the last time, that he threw the keys of the castle over his left shoulder to Robin Redcap committing the castle to the Redcap's keeping. It is said that Rat Robin Redcap still lurks there, guarding treasure, and that the door to the chamber where Lord Solus used to commune with the evil spirits opens every seven years to let him out. According to Henderson, the Picts who built the border castles used human blood to purify the foundation stones. This grisly act created resident ghosts in the buildings and some wonder if the spirits of these sacrifices take the form of the Redcaps, or Dunters as they're sometimes called, 
If so, it would be interesting to know how Lord Solis managed to conjure one as a familiar. Redcaps pop up elsewhere in folklore, as folklore creatures often do. While the border redcaps favor blood and destruction, a Perthshire redcap and Grantuli Castle showers anyone who sees him with good fortune. According to the Irish, the redcap is the cousin of the vampire, and they also say in Ireland that the cap is made from dried human skin. Lord Solis, he sat in Hermitage Castle, and beside him old Redcap Sly. Now tell me, thou sprite, who art makel of might, the death that I must die. While thou shalt bear a charmed life, and hold that life of me, against lance and arrow, sword and knife, I shall thy warrant be. Nor forge still, nor hempen band, shall e'er thy limbs confine, till threefold ropes of sifted sand around thy body twine. If danger press fast, knock thrice on this chest with rusty padlocks bound. Turn away your eyes, and when the lid shall rise, and listen to the sound. Lord Solis he sat in Hermitage Castle, and Redcap was not by, and he called on a page who was witty and sage to go to the Barmkin High. And look thou east, and look thou west, and quickly come to tell me, what troopers haste along the waste, and what may their livery be? He looked o'er fell, he looked o'er flat, but nothing I wist he saw, save a piet on a turret that sat beside a corby crawl. The page he looked at the skirt of day, but nothing I wist he saw, till horseman gray in the royal array rode down the hazel shawl. Say, why do you cross o'er moor and moss? So loudly cried the page. I tidings bring from Scotland's king to solace of hermitage. He bids me tell the bloody warden, oppressor of low and high, if ever again his lieges complain, the cruel Solis shall die. From the New York Times, November 5th, 1977. Finally, the only true explanation for everything. The quiet folk are a gentle and peaceable tribe if left undisturbed. Because they have lived for so many thousands of years in the depths of the earth, they know the hiding places of all ores and precious stones, and are extremely wealthy. Any human foolish enough to attempt to cheat them of their gold will only succeed in angering them. Upon hearing the sounds of church bells, drums, or farm machinery, and become violent if the church is ever mentioned. Among the quiet folk's other hatreds are humans who treat them badly, break promises, are by turns friendly and unfriendly, or worst of all, force the quiet folk to show their goose feet. Angry quiet folk should be avoided at all costs. They are slow to anger, but when angry, are impossible to calm. Identification. The adult dwarves are between one and a half and two and a half feet high and wear coarse black clothing 
and red or gray hats, which give them the power of invisibility, as well as extraordinary strength and courage. Their skin is black, their arms long, their eyebrows and beards thick and bushy. Their bodies are often crooked and misshapen, and their feet like those of ducks or geese. They can live to be 2,000 years old, although full-grown at the age of three. Their hair turns gray a little before their fourth birthday. Drakes. Although often confused with fire spirits, drakes are house spirits who travel through the air as fiery streaks, bringing milk, grain, and eggs to their masters. Their relationship with their masters is very intense. Speaking of the violence of their natures, it is often a bond between two males, the male house drake and his human master, and it's occasionally signed in blood. To fulfill his part of the bargain, Drake must take care of the horses and stables and make sure his master's pantry, granary, and gold chests are well stocked. The master must see to it that the Drake is well fed and that all proper reverence is paid to him. Anyone who insults a Drake endangers the very existence of the house it lives in. Drakes only take on the characteristics of fire when they fly. Then they appear as fiery stripes with great heads or as an egg-shaped flaming ball. They can travel incredible distances in a fraction of a second and return just as fast, bringing gifts from halfway around the world. Humans who happen to see them on their journey should get safely undercover, for they leave behind them an unbearable odor of burning sulfur. If the onlookers react quickly, they may succeed in gaining some of the gifts for themselves. They must quickly yell, 50, 50, or throw a knife at the drake. If two people are present, they should cross their legs together in silence, pull the fourth wheel off a wagon, and hurry under cover. If these rituals are performed quickly enough, the drake will be compelled to drop part of his load. Rationalist, materialist, be forewarned. The ancient, actual, international forces governing earthly incident and momentum lie neither in our heads nor in our economics, but rather in the revelations in the following excerpts from the forthcoming book, A Field Guide to the Little People, by Nancy Aerosmith with George Morse. Nixon and Rivermen, one of the most traveled routes into Elfland, will always be through water, freshwater in particular. The Nixon and Rivermen are the guardians of this route, welcoming their favorites and blocking the way to the merely curious. They love to seduce young girls and show them the wonders of their underwater homes. Men are guided into their land by the Elf King's tune, played by the Nixon on golden harps or golden fiddles. Because of their office as the custodians of this route, the Nixon and Rivermen are particularly dreaded by humans who fear the other world of the elves as they fear madness, poetry, and extreme beauty. From this fear have been fashioned the stories of the evil necks who suck the souls of their victims and keep them trapped in cages underwater. All humans who want to protect themselves from Nixon and Rivermen should keep in mind that water elves do not like steel and can be bound by it into powerlessness. Those who want to be completely safe should also repeat this rhyme before bathing or going near a lake. Neck, neck, needle, thief. You are in the water, but I am on land. Neck, neck, needle, thief. You are on land, but I am the water. Hobgoblins. The Brownies are the most important Scottish house elves, the Bukad the most numerous Welsh sprites, and the Hobgoblins the most populous English species. 
They rarely leave the house, preferring to stay warm and comfortable next to the hob. Every section of England has its own neighborhood hobgoblins, and they are known under a variety of names. Hobgob, Tom Tit, Robin Roundcap, Hobthrush, Hob, and Goblin Groom were individual hobgoblins so well known that they were called by their proper names. Unfortunately, fewer and fewer English home sprites have been seen in recent years, owing to their distrust of crowded towns, electricity, machines, and industrialization. They become so rare that most people are only acquainted with them through stories and poems. Although Robin Goodfellow and Puck are perfectly respectable names for hobgoblins, they are most likely not the names of historical elves, but of literary personifications. Identification Hobgoblins are almost extinct, and therefore it's difficult to find detailed descriptions of them. Usually one or two feet tall, they have dark skin, and are either naked or dressed in brown tattered clothes. Sirens Sirens are southern European sea spirits, similar to the northern European. They are gifted with such sweet, melodious voices that they can enchant men, fish, and even the wind and water. Their power is at its strongest on moonlit nights, when they come to the surface to sing and dance in the slivery light, and at noon when they hide themselves in the heat haze and lure ships on the reefs and rocks. Handsome young sailors should be especially careful. Sirens will do everything in their power to drown them and bring them to their underwater palaces. There, the young men are jealously guarded and often tempted into marriage. Those who comply with the requests of the sirens are treated kindly and live in greatest luxury, but those who refuse are kept prisoners and bound with golden chains. Identification The sirens are four to five feet tall. They are extraordinarily beautiful, wear rich gowns, and are very fond of jewelry. They sleep during the day and can only be seen at noon and in the light of the moon. When they travel through the water, it is usually in the form of women with fishtails or as dolphins. When they travel through the air, they take eagle form. Habitat The sirens live in sumptuous palaces under the sea and are known on most of the Mediterranean islands in Greece, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, and the Azores. They are rarely seen in the open sea, preferring to stay near river mouths or along coasts. Pixies In southeast England, ants should be treated with respect. According to popular tradition, they are the last survivors of the original red-headed inhabitants of Cornwall, their children, of these first settlers, and all other un unbaptized or pagan children since, change at their death into Piskies. At first, the Piskies were man-sized. Accounts of them in the 17th century speak of them as being four feet tall. They then became successively smaller and smaller, until in this century they appear as diminutive Piskies, or as Mayrons, the fairy ants. It is believed that they will spend their last days on Earth as ants. Then they will never be seen again. The present-day pixies are tiny field sprites. They are hairy and naked, or wear raggedy green clothes and red hats. Mischievous and irreverent, they love to steal and to lead humans astray. They steal turnips and apples from the fields, sour the milk, lure men into bogs. They dance to the music of crickets, frogs, and grasshoppers, and their dancing circles can be found throughout Devon, Somerset, and Cornwall. Identification The pixies are between 9 and 12 inches high, have red hair, pointed ears, and turned up noses, and an often hairy and cross-eyed appearance. They are either naked or wear tattered green clothes. The Sidhay The fairies are one of the most populous species of European little people. The word fairy has been continually misused and misapplied throughout the English-speaking world, the fairies are still a people of great power in Ireland. 
They are the descendants of the original Irish, the Tuatha de Danann. Those with the closest ties to the Tuatha are called the Sidhe, the She. They are the aristocrats of the fairy, very beautiful and of great size, great age, and even greater power. Their music is a joy to listen to, and their queen, Maeve, is of such beauty that it is dangerous for humans to look at her. They live in a very domesticated life, if left undisturbed, caring for their animals, drinking whiskey, borrowing milk and mill, but if they are molested, or if any of their taboos are broken, they will react with great violence. Their touch alone can sicken or madden human, and their elf arrows cause instant paralysis or death. People they fancy are kidnapped and made to act as slaves or concubines inside their hills. Even a short stay with the fairies changes humans completely, and they return to Earth as madmen, seers, healers, or prophets. There are many ways to avoid angering the fairies. Even more numerous are the means of protecting oneself against them. A few of the most important should always be kept in mind. Never eat fairy food, but on the other hand, never forget to leave them an offering of food and water or some milk, potatoes, tobacco, or whiskey. If milk is spilled, there's someone the better for it, and those who don't cry over the fact win the approval of the fairies. Slovenly people are despised by the fairies, and for that reason, the house and especially the fireplace should be swept early and then all the ashes and rubbish thrown out well before dark. One should avoid contact with the fairies while they're at their strongest. On the moving days of 1st of May and Halloween, when they move to their summer or winter homes, during the month of May at twilight before sunrise and at noon, one should never walk inside a fairy circle or over fairy hills and under no circumstances try to build a house there. One should always tip one's hat when passing a dust devil and never turn around to look back at a fairy. Cutting down a thorn hush or leaving something on a fairy path invites disaster, and those who praise a person without saying God bless him make it possible for fairies to take him to their world. The most effective protection against the fairies is iron, but salt and religious objects may also be used. Four-leaf clover in one's hat makes it possible to see the fairies.